Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Gathering Podcast. Greetings, Imago Day. Uh, AJ Swoboda with you once again. Joy to be with you. This third installment of our three-part discussion about paying attention. Uh, in week one, which I invite you to go back and listen to, we talked about distraction and the culture of distraction, this tyranny of distraction that we seem to find ourselves in. Uh, last week, our, our last second conversation, we talked about this biblical concept of tending. We looked at Moses walking by the burning bush, Jesus sitting by a well, uh, and the story of Peter walking by the temple in Jerusalem and how powerful it was that they were able to stop and see. And as a result of stopping and seeing, um, there was a massive uh, transformation of, of lives. Uh, the first missionary in the Gospel of John as a result of Jesus stopping by a well and paying attention. Moses liberating Israel from oppression in Egypt, the result of his ability to stop and look and see the burning bush. And of course, Jesus uh, is our ultimate watcher, paying attention, sitting at the right hand of God, watching the world in love. This week, I want to talk about the practical dimension of paying attention. I don't think any of us would question that we need to learn to work our muscles of attention, of paying attention. But how do we do that? Um, and broadly, that gets to the question of how do we change? How do we begin to actually change as Christians and become the people God has called us uh, to become? And so before we take some communion together, break the bread and um, enjoy Eucharist uh, together as God's people, I wanna suggest some ideas about how we can practically begin to live into a rhythms that help us pay attention to God's, um, what God cares about. Uh, in Romans uh, chapter uh, 13, uh, Paul uh, is writing to this church of new Christians, these new believers in the city of Rome. And he says this, he says um, uh, to, this, to this church, he says, let no debt remain outstanding, uh, Romans 13 verse eight. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man, fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandment, do not eat, commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbors yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Pay attention because our salvation is near, it's like he's saying, because our salvation is near now than it has when you first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension, dissension and uh, jealousy, rather clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Paul here is envisioning the coming day of Jesus when he will return and make all things right, what he would call in another letter, the reconciliation of all things. He's looking forward to that day. But even before that, Paul is saying, live in light of that day. And as a result of knowing what is to come, right? Live in light of knowing that he is coming. Uh, uh, repent uh, of, of, your, of your sin. Live in love towards your neighbors and your brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord. Don't gossip, right? Don't live uh, jealously towards 
uh, one another. And so he's giving us almost this, this ethic of the end, this ethic of esch- this eschatological ethic, right? Living uh, a certain way in light of Christ's return and reconciliation of all things. And then he says, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus. And don't think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Clothe yourself with Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean to clothe ourselves with Christ Jesus? It's an interesting image to use. Um, clothing in the Bible has a very interesting story. At the very beginning of creation, of course, uh, the very first image of clothing we have is the result of shame. Adam and Eve were naked, noticed their own nakedness, saw their own nakedness, and then as a result, clothed themselves with shame or clothed themselves with fig leaves. And of course, God is going to clothe them even more with uh, the, the skin of, a, of an animal whose life uh, would have been taken for their covering. And so clothing actually has a very interesting beginning in the Bible. It's not a very positive one. Clothing is the result of, of shame. It's the result of them having uh, been given over to sin. And so the first Adam in uh, the Genesis account was naked but clothed himself. They called Jesus the second Adam, right? The, 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 the return, the one who come, came to make it right. And the story of Jesus is the reverse. Uh, Jesus uh, wore clothing his entire life, but he was a man with no shame. And upon his death, uh, all of his clothing is removed. Uh, it's the reversal of the first Adam. Uh, the first Adam was naked and then clothed. The second Adam was clothed and then naked. Many of the earliest Christians actually for the first few hundred years when they would be baptized uh, would undergo this uh, catechism of three years where they would be uh, put through uh, this three-year process of learning the core teachings of the faith and then they'd be baptized. But when they baptized in the ancient world, they didn't baptize the, the way that we do. We put on these white robes and we uh, get into the waters and it's uh, you know in a, in a pool almost in the church building. But in the ancient world, when somebody would be baptized, they would actually be taken down to a river uh, they would recite the Apostles' Creed. They'd be prayed for. An exorcism would take place. <laughs> and then they would be stripped of their clothes and they would be naked. Um, most of the early Christ- earliest Christians would have been baptized naked. And the image was a symbol of in Christ, we return to our shamelessness before God. And so I wonder if there's something to be said about that here. When Paul says, clothe yourself with Christ Jesus, he is your clothing. He is the one who clothes you. But I wonder even further than that if there's a a spiritual formation principle at work here. In the realm of theology, there's been this long-term debate. Uh, Does theology change our actions or do actions change our theology? Do we believe our way into right action or do we act our way into right belief? This tension between uh, orthopraxy, the way we live in orthodoxy. And I almost wonder if this text invites us to consider a new way to imagine a changed life. We almost always assume changed theology leans to changed beliefs. But I, I want to provoke to you that maybe changing the way we live first, even before we understand it, is a, is a helpful way to go about having a changed heart. I remember when I was a, a student in seminary, I had a professor who was a, uh, an Oxford-trained church historian, this brilliant guy, classic British-trained. He, he wore loafers and he always had a a bow tie on, uh, and his uh, jacket always had leather right here. You, you know exactly the kind of professor we're talking about here. And I, I took this church history class and it blew my mind. It was the greatest class I've ever taken. And I remember deciding I wanna be a teacher. 
I want to do what he does. It's just incredible uh, teaching skills, content, incredible. So I, I set up a meeting and I met with them and I said, I said, Dr. Bruner, I, I want to be like you. I want to teach like you. And he gave me the weirdest advice. <laughs> I said, what do I need to do? Do I need to get a PhD? Do I need it? And all that stuff, you know, we'll talk, we, we could have talked about later, but he said, the most important thing you need to do is this. You need to get a bow tie and you need to get some loafers and you need to get a jacket that's got leather right here. He goes, I want you to start dressing. Uh, I want you to start dressing like a professor. And I said, why in the world do you want me to start dressing like a professor? And he said, because if you start dressing like a professor, you'll start thinking like a professor. If you start doing it, you'll start being it. And in a lot of ways, when we're thinking about this distraction conversation, Christian practice, sometimes we have to do it before our hearts become changed. That we actually practice the thing before our hearts become transformed. Some of you are experiencing that right now as you're learning about you're throwing yourself into a world of learning about the history of racism in our nation, the history of, of, of deep racial inequities and wrongs that have been done for histories, generations that have been done for, for, for centuries. And you're throwing yourself into something that maybe you don't know a whole lot about. But by throwing yourself into it, you're learning about it. I invite you to, to see the spiritual disciplines in a, in a similar way. That before you understand it, you start doing it. And I want to suggest today just some ideas about how you can begin to attend, pay attention uh, to God, to people in a more robust, I, I would argue, Christianly way. Here's some ideas to think about. Number one uh, is, is consider this. Consider the idea of taking one day a week and not having your phone with you. One day a week of not having your phone with you. A screen Sabbath, you could consider it. A screen Sabbath. You know, one, one of my favorite books uh, that I read years ago was a, a book by a guy named Brother Lawrence. He wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. And what he talks about, uh, he, was a, he was a monk, and he talks about in his monastery um, encountering God in doing dishes. Right? He, he talks about how he found God, he encountered Jesus by washing plates and he talks about the God of the pots and the pans. I love that image, right? The God of the pots and the pans. And I think what Brother Lawrence teaches us is that if we're willing to believe that this world is made and created by God and that God's presence is with us wherever we go, there is nowhere we can be that is absent from God's truth and reality and presence everywhere we go. Our world is drenched with the wisdom and joy of the Creator. The, the problem is we carry little computers around in our pockets all the time. And they, these, little, these little devices have tremendous power. Uh, I've read in, in the last few years in, uh, in, in Silicon Valley these real conversations that we need to start having technologically ethic technological ethic, ethics developed. We need to develop, uh, you know, understanding the ethical side of technology because I'm not entirely sure a 13-year-old can fully, I, I struggle with my iPhone. It's taken me away from everything. But how does it impact an un, a completely informed, unformed mind of a child? These are important ethical conversations to be having. Should we be giving phones to children? Uh, that may be a different conversation, but none of us are gonna question that these devices are changing the way we live. 
They're rewiring so many aspects of the human experience and what it means to be a person. I wanna to suggest to you, the idea of the Sabbath applies not just to taking a day away from work, but that maybe it actually gives us an invitation to take a day away from availability, to have one day a week where we willingly enter into our own death. Now, one theologian says that Sabbath is a, a little bit like practicing your own death. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, embracing your own unavailability. What I find when I take a day, and I do this every week, every Saturday, my family, my wife and I turn our phones off. We're not uh, available by phone one day a week. What I find is two things. Number one, I find on the day of the Sabbath, when I turn my phone off, about four o'clock, five o'clock every Sabbath, I get really depressed. <laughs> and I start feeling like I'm missing something. I start feeling like my I'm not getting the hits that I need from my, my phone. I start getting really sad and I really wanna turn my computer on. Because man, when you turn that computer on, you know that feeling of all those emails that come strolling, flowing in, you just feel important again, don't you? So I know that you feel almost this depression. But the second thing I notice is when I actually do take a day away, the next day, my mind feels so different. I'm way more attentive to my relationships. I'm way more attentive to my work. I'm way more attentive to my body, and I'm way more attentive to the still voice of the Holy Spirit. What would it look like for one day a week to intentionally turn your phone off, turn your notifications off, and to be able to have a break? My gut would tell me that you're gonna struggle with the same thing. You're gonna have moments in the day where you're gonna be like, man, is the world really going on without me? And the answer is it will. But you're also gonna find the day after such a liberating sense of life. Another thing to consider is this. I think there's something to be said. Jesus is inviting us to reappropriate the centrality of the table for Christian witness. And that is that we, we understand that Jesus is the God of the table. He sets the table. He is the host. In a few moments when we celebrate communion together, he is the host. It's his table. Just as Jesus reclined at the table with his disciples over his three-year ministry and enjoyed the last supper with his disciples, my favorite thing about Jesus is that even after his resurrection, he gets with his disciples and has breakfast by a lake. We got last supper, but we also got first breakfast. Jesus is always eating with his disciples. He's always eating. The centrality of the table. But man, when you go to a restaurant and watch families and people be together now, we're not at the table anymore. I was recently in a restaurant and watched as an entire family of five for nearly an hour didn't say a word to each other. They were watching the screens on the walls and they were playing games. Now, man, call me old school here, but isn't there something lost when we don't have the capacity to sit at the table and recline at the table with people made in the image of God? Image bearing people? I'm gonna have to remind myself, people are made in the image of God, my iPhone is not. And to be able to give my attention to the iPhone, and the games on my phone over people, that's sending a message that this thing is more important than those things. But God's kingdom, people are always more important, always more important. What would it look like for us to begin to develop disciplines 
around allowing the table to be a place safe from the distractions of technology. Call me a heretic, but I think that's gonna rewire some of our relationships. Thirdly, I think there's a, a, a critical aspect of immersing ourselves back into the created order. Uh, you read the psalmic lang language, the psalmist is always talking about God's glory in creation. I've long found it interesting that uh, the Hebrew word for Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, ruach, and the, uh, the Greek word for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, pneuma, the images of the Holy Spirit in the Bible are always natural images. Wind, fire, breath, right? Uh, dove, uh, these are all natural metaphors. It's, it's fascinating. All the images for the Holy Spirit in the Bible are, are images of things that you would see outdoors. I wonder what this looks like for a bunch of urbanites or people that live in the city. Um, we're, we're a state, we're a, a context that loves the great outdoors. But so, something is tragically lost when we, when we forget to immerse ourselves into God's created order. A friend of mine is actually a psychologist uh, at a university, a, a public university here in Oregon who pointed out to me uh, that psychologists are actually finding some interesting connections uh, between pornography addiction and our lack of connectivity to the created order. And that is that the less we get outside, we have a higher percentage of having addictive patterns when it comes to what we look at on our television screens and on our computers. And I can't help but wonder if there is a deep connection between our spiritual well-being and our capacity to get outside and our capacity to return to God's created order. Uh, that we would resist those urges uh, to only be indoors, <laughs> but to get out and see what God has made in this beautiful, beautiful created world. I would say this as well, uh, that we should rethink notifications. Um, if you have a, an iPhone, and I have one, and I, I use it every day. Um, one thing that's radically changed my life is a simple transition of turning off my notifications. I, f I find that when my notifications on my phone are on, I'm just, I'm going from buzz to buzz, right? I'm, I'm going from uh, notification to game update to my mom texting me all at the same time. And I can't attend to anything. It's just one big task switch. But I, 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 a few years ago, somebody encouraged me, turn your notifications off, and I did. It transformed the way I live my life. Um, I still have the capacity to reach in my pocket and check my text to see if they're there. Uh, but the simple act of turning notifications off allows me to practice the presence of God where I am. If there's an emergency, someone can call. It's not a problem. But those little notifications, we have grown so good at keeping up with the Kardashians better than we have with keeping up with the Holy Spirit. And part of me wonders at the fact if those notifications are just drawing us away from the things that do matter most. Another idea. When you read, read a whole book, but read it slowly. Uh, Twitter changes the way that you think. It causes us to think in pithy, short, uh, fast. But reading a book over a long period of time is now an act of discipline. Reading scripture from Genesis to Revelation over a 10-year period, just slowly immersing, throwing yourself into a book. We need to learn to read again, slowly, that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. In a culture that values being caught up on everything all the time, listen, I understand the urge. 
but something can be lost when we throw ourselves into those rhythms constantly. What if you just read a book this year? Just one book, call that crazy. What if you just read one book? And lastly, consider this. What if we treated listening to people as practice for listening to God? James writes about that, right? Uh, the apostle says that, you know, we, we he, he speaks to this fact that if we don't know how to listen to, to people, how in the world are we going to be able to listen to God? Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote about this in his book, uh, Life Together, uh, in, in which he says, he who doesn't listen to his brother will not listen to God. There's something to be said about the fact that if we can't listen to people that we can see in front of us, how in the world are we going to be able to listen to the voice of God? To radically attend to people in front of us. This is very real for all of us right now. You know, as a white man living in this uh, in this environment, living in this world, um, I am learning so many of the ways that my privilege and my power have not only impacted my life but impacted the lives of others. And I'm learning right now that when I take time to listen to the stories of people of color, when I stop and listen to stories of racial inequity and injustice, in ways that I've participated in ways that I've benefited from. When I actually stop and listen and take time to be willing to hear those stories, I would, I would invite me to, I'd invite you to think about those, those moments of listening as practicing listening to God, of listening to the least of these, of listening to those in need that I'm actually pre preparing to hear God's voice. You know, when, when putting these things on is hard, and I don't expect any of us to do this perfectly. The world is, we live in, a, in an environment where, where we are just going to increasingly be pulled to and, for, to and fro. But I wanna remind us to consider this at the end, that maybe listening and paying attention impacts the least of these in the most important way. I noticed a few years ago, during a season of working way too hard, that my son would always say to me, my son is eight. He would say to me when I would come home, he would say, dad, take your shoes off, take your shoes off. And I never really understood that. You know, I, I'd remembered the story of Moses when Moses was walking through the burning bush, a story we talked about in our last session. And then when Moses encountered the burning bush, God said to him, take your shoes off. And I never really understood why God told Moses to do that. And so I kind of got fed up with my son and I said, why, in the, why, why do you mean to take my shoes off? And he said to me, he said, because whenever you take your shoes off, you have no better place to be. Because when you take your shoes off your home, you're not going anywhere. That when I'm so distracted, you know who pays a disproportionate price? The least of these, the children, the poor, the marginalized, people in need, they're not seen. And then when God told Moses, take off your shoes, it's like God is saying to Moses, there's no better place to be than with me. The holy response to a people who have encountered the living God is a people that take their shoes off. As you take communion with your family, with your roommates, by yourself. I invite you today, if you take communion, take your shoes off. Be present to God. It's holy ground. 
God is with you. Grace and peace.